Good morning, Grace Point. We are so glad you're here today. Um, we want to welcome you wherever you are in the world. Our, our community really has become global, so that means we want to welcome you if you're in Germany or Argentina or Jordan or England or Wyoming, Washington State, California, Oklahoma, Texas, the Dakotas, um, Arkansas, Alabama, Florida, North Carolina, Michigan, uh, Indiana, Pennsylvania, oh my goodness, Kentucky, West Virginia, Go Mountaineers, and of course, Tennessee. And there are places I didn't name and didn't mention, but if, you, if you're joining us from wherever you are in the world, if you want to just in the chat there, just let us know where you are so we can welcome you and, and know that we have family there as well. Um, today, we're going to continue our series called What is Progressive Christianity? But before we jump into that, I wanted to take just a minute to, to sort of acknowledge um, where we are in the world right now and what's going on. And what I mean by that is, is 2020 was a really, really difficult year and on many, many fronts. And then since November, we've been dealing with all this sort of turmoil around the election and people who didn't want to acknowledge the election. And then last Wednesday or a week ago Wednesday, we had a domestic terror attack uh, on our Capitol. And this past Wednesday, we had the Current president was impeached for the second time, which has not never happened before. And then we're looking at an inauguration, and around that inauguration are all sorts of threats of more acts of terror. So just wanted to create some space and say, if you're not okay, that's okay. If you're struggling, that's okay. If you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're feeling grief and pain, and if you're some sort of amalgamation of all of those things, that's okay. Actually, hope uh, is, isn't precluded or excluded by all those other things we feel. Hope actually comes to us in those moments and allows us to feel them and allows us to feel what we're feeling differently. So just know that you are loved, know that you're not alone. Please reach out um, if there's any way we can serve, if there's any sort of pastoral care we can offer, we are happy to do that. Feel free to send me an email at josh at gracepoint.net and um, we can set something up. Just know that you're not alone in these days. And I, I really personally, I do believe that um, when communities like ours activate as we're activating in the world, that we can actually bring about goodness and we can actually make the world a better place. And so um, thank you for being a part of that process and that work with us as well. So today we're going to continue a series we started last week called What is Progressive Christianity? At Grace Point, we call ourselves a progressive Christian church, but what do we actually mean by that? Last week, we looked at the word Christian, and we talked about reimagining and reframing that word and, and radicalizing it. Of course, radical doesn't mean fringe or out in left field. Radical etymologically means back to the root. And so what would it look like if we could go back and discover what were the early Christians up to? What did they care about? And how did they organize themselves? And what we, found, what we find when we do that work is that they were a community that had an ethos that led them to want to transform the world through acts of justice and compassion, through a boundary-breaking kind of love that transcended all the cultural divides and all the ways people used to hierarchically divide up the world. And if you missed that, you can catch that on YouTube, on Facebook, or our website, gracepoint.net. Uh, today, I want to think about the other word. I want to think about what do we mean by the word progressive? What does it mean to be progressive? If you listen to some voices, or I mean, how many of you have ever said, when somebody said to you, What's your, what is your church like? And you're like, well, it's a progressive Christian church. And they kind of give you that side eye where they're not really sure you're now trustworthy, that you're somehow trying, you have these, this plot or scheme to try to do something um, unorthodox or, or something like that. Um, it's almost as if people, some, some folks think that if you use the name label progressive, that you have some sort of nefarious scheme to 
do all sorts of terrible things in the world, like pursuing equity and justice, making sure everybody has health care, um, making sure people have the right to marry who they love, making sure the color of your skin doesn't determine how the police treat you, uh, and making sure that our unchecked greed doesn't put the future of our planet in more peril. Like Those are the nefarious schemes, right? And of course, I'm uh, being tongue-in-cheek and snarky jokes aside, um, the reality is many of us began our journeys in a conservative context. And at some point, we began to begin to migrate out of that conservative context into the world of progressive Christianity, even if it was unbeknownst to us. I did not know. I didn't wake up one day and say, this isn't working anymore. I am now a progressive Christian. It was a process. It, it was a journey. And it's a journey where, you know, I think you're, as long as you're living, you're on a journey. Um, and so the reality is that we, for some of us, we just began having experiences that challenged the boundaries that our conservative theology had given us. Boundaries and ideas like who God is, or what God is, or who does God love, and who gets included in God's love? What does it mean to be human? Do we begin with shame and guilt, or do we begin with connection and wholeness? Right? These sorts of questions began popping up, and the boundaries that I've been given would not hold. For many of us, we were like Abraham, longing for a land we had never seen and willing to take whatever journey it took to get there. The path hasn't always been clear, and what we've come to understand is that certainty doesn't exist. But we're moving forward once that, even when it's dark and we have maybe, maybe a candle out holding so we can see, even when it's dark and uncertain, we're moving forward because we know, we may not know exactly where we're going, it may not have big bright signs, but we know where we were, Right? And the uncertainty about where we're going is far outweighed by knowing the inadequacy of where we've been. Right? We, we may not have all the answers, but we know way back when we thought we did have all the answers. And we know the way that excluded, and we know the way that wounded, and we know that way it even wounded us as we were wounding others with it. We know the inadequacy of where we started. And so we keep journeying, hopefully, because we know that there's a better way to be Christian. And more than that, there's a better way to be human. And so if we were to, in broad strokes, just think about sort of conservative theology and progressive theology, just to kind of create a, a framework, uh, I would say traditional, and when I use traditional here, I do not mean that it's the always been this way. And I don't mean that this has even always been assumed within Christian history to have been the way. What I mean is it's the dominant perspective. So if we talk about traditional conservative theology, it tends to be grounded in the past, Right. It tends uh, the present, the present and future have sort of already been decided based on texts and interpretation of texts that happened 500 to 2000 years ago. So conservative theology tends to look back to moments uh, when people made certain decisions, when they came up with certain interpretations to certain creeds. And that's sort of where it's frozen. And so to live in the present and, the, and to move to the future is to do so looking back to the past. Now, I'll say progressive theology values the past. Progressive theology doesn't, uh, you know, uh, somebody used, uh, and we'll use it again in a couple weeks, I'm sure, but um, somebody used the language of don't throw the Bible out with the bathwater, right? So progressive theology doesn't want to get rid of everything, but what pres progressive theology does, it, it values the past, but also seeks to remain open to rethinking the past in light of our experiences, in light of what we're learning, in order to shape the future, in a, in the present and future, in a more just and generous way. Progressive th theology does value the past, but we also value the present. We value what we're learning. We value our experiences of the divine. We value our experiences of other human beings. We value science. And as we learn all of these things, our experiences may call us to rethink 
how we've understood it. And as we begin that rethinking process, it makes the future a more hopeful, just, and generous place. To say we're progressive, I think, means we take seriously the words of Jesus in John 16, when he says to his disciples, he's about to, um, he's letting them know his journey's about over. He's going to be crucified by their authorities. He says to his disciples, I have much more to tell you, but you can't bear to hear it now. Isn't that, isn't that such a power? I've got so much more. But, you know, there's this, this moment where they cannot handle the information. I have much more to tell you, but you can't bear to hear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, she will guide you into all truth. She won't speak on her own initiative. Rather, she'll speak only what she hears, and she'll announce to you things that are yet to come. Right? To, to hold yourself open to more information, to hold yourself open to more experiences of spirit. Being a progressive Christian means that we are open to learning and open, open to changing our minds. It means we begin with an assumption that there are things our spiritual ancestors did not know. There's information they simply did not have access to. All right, so for example, in Genesis 1, the cosmological picture of Genesis 1 assumes that the earth rests on pillars, that there's a dome above us that contains windows, and essentially God opens those windows to pour down the rain. Right? That's what Genesis 1 constructs. Our ancient ancestors also assumed a geocentric cosmology. They believed the sun and the stars and all the other planets revolved around Earth. There's actually um, a story in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, that reflects this assumption where the sun is made to stand still. Now, does this make our ancestors bad? Does this make them somehow terrible human beings? Uh, no, it doesn't, because they didn't have access to that information. We have been, had the benefit of history of discovery, of all sorts of things that they couldn't have even found. I mean, can you imagine going back and showing our ancient ancestors a, an iPhone? I mean, can you imagine? It would have just been un, completely unbelievable. And the problem we've seen in history, and especially in church history, isn't that they ha didn't have information, so they made the decisions they made. The problem we've seen is when the church, when Christians have been presented with better information, and in those moments, the church has not always, and I would say actually rarely, if ever, has the church responded to new information with curiosity or openness, but too often it and the people presenting it have been regarded as a threat. In the 15 and 1600s, the church rejected the idea of heliocentrism, that the sun was at the center of our solar system. Eventually, they condemned Galileo as a, as a heretic because he, he held these views. And what's really stunning is that the church officially, the church did not officially admit they got that wrong until October 31st, 1992. We're talking 1600s. From 1600s to 1992, Galileo was held to be a heretic by the church for giving them better information. The issue isn't that they were wrong. Of course they were wrong about stuff. Of course we're wrong about stuff. There's stuff, there's information that we don't have yet. There are inventions and crea creations that we don't know about yet. The problem isn't that they were, were, maybe didn't have the full picture. The issue is the unwillingness for hundreds of years to acknowledge and embrace a more informed position. Ultimately what we're talking about is repentance because to repent means to change your mind, to change your heart, to walk one way, but then you turn around and you're going back the other way. There's a story in the book of Acts that expresses this so powerfully. And it's a story that, honestly, anytime somebody asks me about what it means to be a progressive Christian, I share this story, especially when they say, how do you justify getting there? How can you say that, 
well, that maybe there are some things in the Bible you just don't agree with. Or how can you say that, that the scriptures say this, but then you take this position? This story for me has always, has, on this journey, has always been so powerful and meaningful. Um, and it's in the book of Acts chapter 10. One of Jesus' earliest followers, known as Simon Peter, um, he has an experience that transformed the way he saw everything, especially the way he saw the world. Um, he had this vision. He was up on a roof praying and he was hungry. Uh, and he has this vision where a sheet is let down from heaven. And on this sheet are all sorts of animals, birds uh, and reptiles. And the voice of God calls out to Peter, who's hungry, and he says, get up and kill and eat something. And Peter responds to the voice, I can't, my God. I have never eaten anything profane or unclean. Right, so the divine voice says, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter's response to the divine is, no, no, I, I'm, a little more, um, <laughs> I'm a little more faithful than you are to, to my religion. I'm not going to do that. Right? And it happens three times. Uh, the, the vision. Um, Peter resists the command because God is calling him in this vision to do something that he has always believed is off limits. Peter had kept kosher his entire life. There were certain things he didn't do, certain pe people, places, and things that he didn't come in contact with or consume. And in this moment, the divine says, I want you to cross that boundary, uh, the, the clean, unclean boundary. And Peter says, I can't I can't do it. And I imagine for him, this has probably had to have been a difficult moment. Like he's wondering, is this some sort of test? Is God just trying to see what I'll do? Because I, I don't know about you, but my theology uh, at one point in my life, like God just does stuff to see what we'll do. Uh, yet we also say God is all knowing. So why does God have to do stuff to see? What, like it, it doesn't hold up, but there are lots and lots of people who think that that's how God works, that God puts people to the test just to see what they'll do. And if they fail, he'll punish them. She'll punish them. Is this a temptation? Is this actually not the voice of the divine calling Peter into this boundary crossing moment? Is it maybe something in him? Is, it, is that the voice he's hearing? Is this a call, a temptation to unfaithfulness? Or the other possibility is something is happening here. Uh, and this is an invitation to see differently. Now, if we fast forward to this encounter Peter has in Acts 10, he ends up meeting a Roman soldier named Cornelius. And the text describes Cornelius as, in his household, as God-fearing people. They prayed to God constantly and gave many charitable gifts to the need, to needy Jewish people. And about Cornelius particularly, it says, he was an upright and God-fearing person, respected by the Jewish people. This idea of God-fearing, um, it, it's a category, essentially, in the New Testament that is used specifically in Acts. And it's a category that essentially are made up of people who are not ethnically Jewish, um, they haven't gone through a conversion process, yet they find the, the Jewish God compelling. And so they pray, they give, they participate in the ways that they possibly can. But they can't fully participate um, unless they go through that, cross that boundary and become um, and convert. So this, is, this means Cornelius is a Gentile. He's 99% of the world's population, right? He's someone who represents, for Peter, he's someone who represents otherness. And he's someone who represents a danger to his own purity. Now, when Peter encounters Cornelius, Cornelius has an experience of God through his conversation with Peter that was very similar to the one that Jesus' first followers had. And that moment, seeing this experience ha happening and not being able to not deny, like, this is an authentic experience of the risen Christ. We cannot deny it. Um, here's what Peter says. I, am, I really am learning 
that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Man, think about the power of those words. I really am learning that God doesn't play favorites amongst God's kids. I really am learning that God actually does have the whole world in her hands and loves the whole world. When people ask me, why are you progressive? I point to this story. It's a reminder that the God experience will always surprise us. It'll always call us to go beyond all the ways we've hierarchically carved up the world, all the boundaries we've made to say, this is how far God's love goes and it goes no farther. But this is who can be in this community and it goes no farther. The reality is it will always call us. The God experience will always call us to be attentive and sensitive to the ever-expanding work of spirit among us as she calls us into more loving, more generous, more compassionate, more equitable. And actually, if we can just sum all that up, we can say the spirit as she calls us to be more fully human than we've ever imagined we can be. See, I don't think the work of spirit is to somehow take us out of the human and into the divine. I think the work of spirit is to awaken us to the fact that we're already in the divine. And spirit is to awaken us to the reality that being human is exactly who we're supposed to be. It's who we were created to be. And that it all sometimes when we talk about all the terrible things we do in the world to one another, that's not human. We'll just want to say, well, we're only human. No, 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 no. That's not human. What we often call humanity is what we're doing when we're behaving with one another in subhuman ways, ways that are beneath our humanity. I think spirit calls us into a full humanity. And that's why I'm a progressive Christian, because as I follow this Jesus, I am reminded again and again and again that the journey isn't over. That as long as there's breath in my lungs, the journey continues. I do not have everything figured out. I do not know everything. There is more to learn and there is more to discover. And the more flexible and pliable we are, the more transformed we become. And the more flexible and pliable we are, the more we're willing to say, you know, I don't know about that. I'm curious about it. Maybe I should, maybe I should learn about it. Maybe I, and maybe sometimes we learn about stuff. We're like, that's not really for me. That's not really a thing I think would lead me to be more fully alive and more fully human. But I think this, this journey of progressive is, is just about acknowledging there's a lot we don't know. And there's a lot we think we know that we may need to let go of. And that's okay. And that doesn't make God uh, angry. And it doesn't make God afraid that actually it's spirit leading us into this journey. I love this quote from Vincent Donovan. He said, the day we are completely satisfied with what we have been doing, the day we have found the perfect, unchangeable system of work, the perfect answer, never in need of being corrected again. On that day, we will know we were wrong, that we have made the greatest mistake of all. The moment we have it all figured out, the moment we can have God or faith or doctrine in this nice little neat box, we'll know that it's actually been an idol we've been messing with the entire time. We know we don't get everything right. We know that we all make mistakes. And right now, some of us, probably all of us, hold a belief or beliefs that are likely just incorrect in the sense of we think a thing about a thing that's just not how it works, right? Um, I think that's okay. And I think if we're confronted with better information, a more just and generous way, I hope we'll take it. I hope we'll let go of what we always thought and we'll take the thing that's leading us into a more loving, compassionate human story. But the one mistake we won't make here at Grace Point, we will not make the mistake of assuming we have it all figured out. 
We won't bow down at the altar of certainty or orthodoxy or doctrine. We will instead follow the Spirit in all of her wildness, beauty, and grace as she calls us forward. When people ask me, what does it mean to be a progressive Christian? I I think it means that we're unfinished and that it's okay to be unfinished because as long as we have breath in our lungs, the journey continues. New information is received. Transformation occurs. We begin to see things with new eyes. We hear something new that helps us let go of an old perspective that was actually keeping us back and was actually perhaps hurting somebody else. And so at Grace Point, we want to remain open to the work of spirit. We want to remain open. We want to, we want to have moments where the sheet gets dropped down and our entire, our entire system of understanding gets challenged. And on the other side of that, we're invited into becoming a more fully Um, a more generous, more loving and compassionate human being. That's what I mean when I talk about progressive Christianity.